Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. If you can, if you're listening and you enjoy what we do, please help us keep the show on the road. Click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Join us there. You get access to a ton of additional content. You'll get all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed and they're all entirely plea free as well as some patron exclusives that live forever behind the paywall. So give us the 30 seconds it takes for you to join us. You're helping us carve out that little bit of space that we need to be able to have the conversations like the one you're about to listen to. And the one you're about to listen to is really, really good. I've done well over a 1,000 podcasts at this stage, probably closer to 2,000, and this is immediately an instant classic. Thanks to Mohammed for his time. Just a quick content warning before we get to the podcast. I'm going to play you the latest note from Zach in Gaza about his situation and how he and his family have had to flee their home and are making for the Al-Shifa hospital. And Zach says, please do something. And the call goes out to all of us. Make sure we keep doing something. We have to raise our voices. Enjoy the podcast. We are in a very critical situation. We are leaving our home. We can't stay. We were too scared last night. We barely survived. Too many bombings, too many houses attacked in a shoddy camp. And we are leaving our home. And we are seeking shelter now. We might go to a Shifa hospital. Please do something. Please do something. We don't know what's going to happen next. Please do something. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we've continued to cover events in Israel-Palestine, particularly on the ground in Gaza since October 7th. Obviously, we've been covering it for over six years now on this podcast, but we've been really, uh, how do I put this, the world has, has been paying attention, but not necessarily in the right way. It's been a lot of propaganda, a lot of uh, misinformation, disinformation, and a lot of um, people who are just taking sides. Nobody's really showing um, a bit of nuance and a bit of a bit of common sense is lacking in and in a situation whereby thousands of people are dying it's very very grim and with that in mind uh, tonight's guest on the podcast I'm delighted to say is someone who I feel like I I've known for ages and yet I've never spoken to before and I say that because he's been published in places like Haaretz he's been published on Al Jazeera you'll have seen him um, on on uh, Newsweek and um, and you'll probably see him all over Twitter and social media. He's he's, he's a writer and analyst, Mohammed Shihadad. Mohammed, how are you? Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. It's a great pleasure for me to finally get to talk to you. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. It's great to be here with you. Well, I, Thanks for having me. It's a pity it's not under better circumstances, I put it to you, Mohammed. Um, unfortunately, uh, you're... you're your people, the people in Gaza and, and in Palestine are suffering. What people are arguing over is um, not a genocide, which I would maintain it is, and is not eth- ethnic cleansing. I would maintain it is. Before we get into some of the some of the more some of the questions I've written down, I want to ask you: Can I get your general sense 
of events since October 7th and what they represent to the Palestinian people and specifically within Gaza? And I think it's important to look at October 6th. I was calling some friends in Gaza on that day, the night before the attack happened. And it's the same impression over and over again. It's unlivable. Most of the people I know in Gaza reach the age of 35 and even more without having ever been able to have a job because of this really blockade that compromised the economy. They're unable to afford to fall in love, to start a family, to put food on the table, to have any sort of purpose to move out of their parents' home, to have any basic life. And the sentence that I hear most resonant with the Gazan population, especially the youth, is, is they say, well, I'm afraid I'm going to die before I even experience living. You have it totally caged from all directions, including the sea. If you try to go into any of the four directions surrounding Gaza, you will be shot or arrested, detained, pushed back. So the only thing that young people can do there is pace the prime meter of Gaza on a daily basis and count the days. There's basically this process of slow death and and what is called slow violence, that you have a, a bureaucratic, routinized state of non-life that is spread across time and instance that it's not viewed as violent at all from the outside, but from the inside, it's a living hell. So on the night of October 6th, I was actually talking to a friend who was Again, complaining that the electricity is on for eight hours, that he's sick of not having a life, that he wanted to go outside and move abroad, but he couldn't find a way. Then came October 7th, and that Hamas attack and the explosion and the collapse of the fence. I called the same friend again, and he was trembling and and worried sick about what it would mean, where it would lead, because in Gaza we have a very profound experience that every time Israel attacks or every time Hamas attacks Israel, Israel would respond by holding all of us, the entire Gazan population, collectively responsible for what Hamas did and punish us altogether. So cutting fuel, electricity, water, internet, telecommunication and medicine, which is what they've been doing since I think October 9th, as they declared openly. So I I immediately called and he was trembling in fear of what it would mean and where it would lead to because it was an unprecedented attack in in nature and scale. And he was not delusional. The immediate Israeli response that unfolded on the ground is basically um, a significant massacre every day, not even one, several significant massacres every single day. So in 2014, That was Israel's bloodiest war on Gaza, Operation Protective Edge. And in that war, there was a particular day that's called the Black Friday, Mm -hmm. because it it happened in the southern half of Gaza, where Hamas managed to kidnap an Israeli soldier. The Israeli army followed what they call the Hannibal Doctrine or Protocol of trying to kill the soldier and the kidnappers so that it's not used as a bargaining chip to Um, demand the release of Palestinian political prisoners. And basically, Israel started to bomb the area intensively. It killed about 150 people. It was a major, major shock at the time. We called it the Black Friday. But now it's completely dwarfed by why Israel has been unleashing on Gaza since October 7th, because every single day we have about 400 people killed. 
four to five hundred. So it's three Black Fridays every single day since October seventh. And I've lived personally. I lived through ten Israeli military operations since I was a child, since as long as I can remember and and you're, retain memory. You, you were ten. You're ten wars old. Yes, exactly. So I, I lived through ten military operations. Three of them were major wars, and two of them included a grand invasion. But I and everyone I know in Gaza have never seen anything like this ever in terms of magnitude, scale, and severity. You're talking right now that in three three to four weeks, less than four weeks, Israel managed to kill way more Palestinians than all 12 years combined of the first and second intifada, the uprising, in which Israel had a policy that's called breaking the bones. Mm -hmm. And in the second intifada, on the first couple of days, they shot about um, 1.3 million bullets at Palestinian demonstrations. So all 12 years of these two intifadas are minuscule by what Israel unleashed. It's actually, they killed twice as many as in all those 12 years combined. I don't don't want to... um... I don't. I don't like what aboutery. I hate it as as a rule. Uh, yet it's important to say you were talking about your friend on October sixth versus October eighth. What happened on October seventh? As you, as someone who's written about what Hamas have done, was an extraordinarily brutal attack by by any standards for, in Hamas's history. You have you have written yourself about how Hamas have. Um, you know, there, there, there's a long and complicated history there. Um, we, we may get into it, but, uh, you know, you you also have to acknowledge that I remember when I found out what was happening on October 7th, I was asleep and I got a phone call from probably a friend, someone you might know, um, Mahmoud Mustaha, who, who is a, a journalist and he was with We Are Not Numbers, to say what had happened. And my first response was, fuck, thousands of people are going to die. Mm. And yeah, yeah, precisely. But but we have to, you know. So so at, at, there has to be an acknowledgement there that Hamas must have known that this was the reaction, not this reaction in terms of genocide, <laughs> but that there was going to be an actual huge, vicious um, reaction from the most right wing government in Israeli history. Yeah, yeah, of course. And October seventh, Hamas's attack was, as you said, brutal on many levels. There are instances of alleged war crimes that uh, require and warrant an investigation by the International Criminal Court. But this has been a Palestinian position since 2014 of saying that all Palestinians, it's a unanimous position, even by Hamas itself, of saying we would submit and cooperate with the International Criminal Court if it launches a probe into both sides, allegations of war crimes by either side. And all Palestinian parties submitted. In Israel, not a single political party said yes. There was only one member of a party that's called Meretz. Meretz is the far left in Israel. That's the leftest you can get, the most left you can get. And one member of Meretz. Yep. So one member of Meretz said, yeah, the ICC, we cannot delegitimize it and call it anti-Semitic as we've done. It's a legitimate concern that they have. And we should have expected that it would get this far. He was immediately slaughtered politically. Mm-hmm. He was attacked viciously by every single politician in Israel. Every single political group came out to attack him. And how dare you support this anti-Semitic uh, international criminal court investigation? So that's the scene. But October 7th itself, it has a lot of nuances to it, to what unfolded. 
there are again a lot of, of potential possible war crimes, a lot of actions that amount to war crimes, the kidnapping of, of elderly kids, uh, civilians, women, the killing of women and civilians and, and men it, and children, etc. These are um, these may amount to a war crime warranting an investigation. But the way that the events themselves unfolded, it's basically you need to look as someone who analyzed and studied and reported and criticized Hamas for over a decade. I, my view is that you need to look at it not just as one entity but and as a monolith, but as a group of people from diverse schools of thought. They have a certain Islamist ideology that combines them together. But the movement as Hamas, they have sort of leaders that are relatively by their own standards considered moderates. They have hardliners and sort of people in the middle that are more pragmatists, that people would follow whatever works, no matter what the, the means are, as long as it achieves the goal, whether nonviolence or violence, etc. And the balance of power shifts all the time. So in 2006, Tony Blair allowed two Hamas leaders into the UK and Northern Ireland. That was Ahmed Yusuf and Sayyid Abum Sameh. And they managed to meet with leaders of the RA and the Sinn Féin. And the impression they came back with was very enlightening to their own thinking. Because they saw the, the Good Friday Agreement as something that they might be able to build on. And they tried to move into this moderate direction. So Ahmed Yusuf is considered one of the the very far leftists in Hamas, hmm. one of the extreme moderates. But basically, the balance of power shifts all the time based on who can achieve actual results. So if Ahmed Yusuf comes out and says, OK, we need to try diplomacy, lay down the weapons, we need to stop, we need a ceasefire, we need a setva, he might win the argument in that particular instance. But if it does not achieve any results, he will soon be sidelined and disempowered. And that's the process that unfolded here. It's basically hardliners in Hamas believe that, okay, um, we need to shake up the status quo completely. We need to do something major, unprecedented. And they hold the belief that the previous escalations or wars in Gaza did not lead to any major breakthrough. So they need something way more major or substantial than anything they've done in, in their entire history. So that leads up to their argument that later on unleashed October 7th. And then you have the sort of pragmatist wing of the movement saying that's, for instance, Yahya Sinwar, the head of Hamas in Gaza, saying, OK, we need to try this Qatari ceasefire mediation. And that Qatari mediation agreement between Hamas and Israel went as thus that Israel would lift certain aspects of the blockade and allow economic progress in Gaza in return for Hamas maintaining quiet. And at that time, Yahya Sinwar reportedly wrote a letter to Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, in Hebrew, telling him, quote, take a calculated risk. Although that's a, a big deal in Hamas because they're not allowed to, they're not supposed to speak to Israelis directly. But Sinwar, he wrote a letter, a personal letter, handwritten to Netanyahu saying, take a calculated risk. And that that paradigm sort of worked and started in 2019 and 18. That's when Gaza had what was called at the time the Great March of Return. Mm -hmm. The biggest sort of overwhelmingly nonviolent uh, demonstration or protest 
that when young people going through the borders up to 40,000, between 40,000 and 100,000 at, at some points, going to the primary offense with Israel every Friday without a single Hamas flag, it's all Palestinian flags that were there, without any sort of militants amongst them, without any sort of, of major acts of violence, overwhelmingly peaceful. There were some few incidents here and there that were problematic. But every Friday they would go to the primary offense and get shot by Israeli snipers. And it, it went to the level that by the end of it, it went on for less than two years. But by the end of it, about 220 people were killed and more than 34,000 people were wounded. And thousands of those people that were wounded got wounds that, are, that require either permanent periodic reconstructive surgery or amputation. So not a single neighborhood in Gaza without amputees limping uh, everywhere. So that foiled the idea of nonviolence. But something came out of this demonstration, the Great March of Return, is Sinwar's understanding with Israel, the, the Qatari-sponsored ceasefire. Mm. And it worked since 2019, where Israel would expand Gaza's fishing zone. They would allow about 17,000 people from Gaza to come and work inside Israel. And they would sort of allow some material that they previously were restricting or, or forbidding banning from entering Gaza, such as construction material or fiberglass to fix fishing boats, etc. So they said that they would allow that in return for maintaining calm. And it sort of works very well for four years because the main evidence of that is that Israel launched two military operations in Gaza on a less famous group than Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The POJ, yes. One of them one of them was last May, another was last year. And in both of these operations, Hamas didn't fire a single rocket. So by Israel's own admission at the time, these understandings worked. What happened differently is basically, number one, the ceasefire understandings not bearing any substantial fruit to the general population in Gaza. It turned into what people in Gaza would refer to as sedatives or painkillers. So it's just expanding the fishing zone a little bit, uh, a few thousand people being allowed out, but nothing for the general population at large. And you can see that it's nothing for the general population by Israel's own words, because uh, the Israeli defense minister, Benny Gantz, went on an, on record last year, and he said, quote, we will not allow any real development in Gaza, any real economic development. He said, we're not animals, we're going to give them food and water, we will not allow any real development in Gaza. So that maintains the state of non-life in Gaza itself. But something else happens that drives or gives the upper hand to hardliners in Hamas. And it's a whole bunch of, of problems that unfolded this year in particular. Because Netanyahu wrote into office the most far-right, most extreme government in Israel's history. It included the minister in charge of national security, is in Israel, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Ben-Gavir, who was a monster. Go on, yeah. He's a convicted terrorist supporter. He was convicted for terror support and for racist incitement. He used to allegedly send kids to graffiti and UN headquarters in Jerusalem, death to the Arabs and long live Israel, and to try to smash windows and slash tires and that kind of, of lunatic. So he becomes in charge of the police. And he does two things. Number one, or three things, actually. Number one, arm settlers to the thief. Arm Israelis to the thief. 
And number two, provoke Palestinians where it hurts the most. And that's the Aqsa Mosque. Mm. That has the most symbolic value because Palestinians view it not just as a religious uh, holy site, but as a symbol that is emblematic of the status of the Palestinian cause altogether. So if Israel tries to take over and they push too far to change the status quo that's been there for decades, if not centuries, then Palestinians, it signals to them total defeat, that they're being crushed. So Ben Gvir starts to tamper with the status quo at Al-Aqsa, which is the strongest fuel you can give to ideologues in Hamas, to the hardliners who would say, look, they want to destroy Al-Aqsa. They want to turn it into a Jewish temple and gives them a lot of fuel for their argumentation internally and gives them the upper hand. And then the last thing he does, he goes after Palestinian prisoners. And Palestinian prisoners in Israel, they enjoy another very significant symbolic status amongst Palestinians. It's because since 1967, Israel detained about a million Palestinians. And the ones that are held in prison now, all of them are put on trial in military courts, in kangaroo courts, where the conviction rate is 99.74%. Yeah, I'm aware of this. Whereas the, convic- yep, the conviction rate of Israeli settlers... is less than, one, is less than Israeli 1%, attack. isn't it? Exactly, 1.8%. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, yeah, so that's one stark issue, one stark problematic issue. Can I cut in for a moment and just say it's really important people understand, uh, since October 7th, the number of detainees people imprisoned uh, w- without charge has almost doubled um from but yes. uh, so this is really crucial here so you know only a few months ago we we know Kadira Anan had had died on hunger strike we don't know you know the suspicion was that they tried to force feed him i think it was maybe was it mm. his uh, 86th day 87th day on hunger strike uh, you know the, the uh, irish irish audiences will get the uh, the historical echoes of what this means but i think look first of all you've just given us a brilliant breakdown of the situation but can i then Let's bring it to today, if you don't mind. What's happening right now? We're watching this also, and it's it's a kind of disgusting thing to say, but we're looking at also the financial might of Israel. Israel is now in is talking about well, we'll pay down Egyptian debt of twenty billion if they allow us to force people into the Sinai Desert. Therefore, people are just financial instruments, uh, like you know. And 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 then we saw the the culture minister uh, tweeting out about that. Um, you know, Gaza will look beautiful once we we push them back and we give we reward the soldiers and the the settlers in the area with the with the land of Gaza. This is the sort of stuff that legion legionnaires got in the Roman military. You know, you you went and you you conquered and you got a share of the spoils. It's it's disgustingly um, barbaric. Yet no one seems to be saying stop Muhammad no one no one seems to be able to like people are keep we've people saying oh don't say ceasefire say humanitarian pause and bullshit like that and the mm. other argument back to Hamas if you don't mind is that if we have a ceasefire it will just allow Hamas to um, rearm itself and and start attacking mm. again can you can you give me a sense of my little rant is finished now? Can you give me a sense of where where you feel we are right now in 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 the context of some of the things I've just mentioned? But first, I'd start with the lunatic ministers in the Israeli government because they didn't start saying this on October seventh or after. They've been saying this ever since they took office. You have um, Bislail Smotrich, the Israeli de facto prime minister of the West Bank, 
and the finance minister of Israel explicitly calling for wiping out entire Palestinian villages like Hawara. He says, wipe it out completely. That's what I want to see the IDF doing. And they've been very explicit for the last year of these nonstop statements and actions. So, for instance, backing Israeli settler terrorism that went on daily in the West Bank, where they walk into villages, kill people, burn homes, steal cattle, and then run away with it with full impunity. For instance, Bingvir, and one thing I would conclude with, with the Palestinian prisoners on him, he basically, one of his first decisions was to ban Palestinian prisoners from getting bread, especially baked bread that they used to make themselves in prison. And then he filmed himself for a video clip on TikTok where he's stuffing his face with freshly baked bread and saying, guess who's not getting any? Palestinians in our prison. <laughs> I remember it. And then he reduced, yeah, he reduced their shower time to two minutes a day. So it's basically those lunatics have been very explicit about what they want. They have a very good Israeli friend, Yehuda Shaul, who's one of the founders of the Israeli group Breaking the Silence. And he, I met him, um, I think, in, in March or April this year. And he said very explicit thing. He said, the, the way I see things moving is that this government will not rest until they put Palestinians on trucks and send them outside, deport them. That's way before October 7th. Mm. And I talked to an Israeli military general, uh, a former top military general. He's called Ephraim Sneh. He used to be the deputy defense minister. I saw him in August. And he was telling me exactly word for word the same thing. This government will not rest until they have an all-out war, until they report Palestinians and put them on trucks. So the lunacy has been explicitly there from before. Now with Hamas's attack, as you said, and as I said, it has a lot of brutal aspects to it. A lot of possible war crimes that weren't an investigation and holding them accountable. Hamas is in Gaza is three things. It's a government, it's a political party, and it's a military wing. These things are independent of each other or separate to some extent from each other. Hamas's government in Gaza, by Gazan views, is awful. It's autocratic in many ways. It's brutal in many ways on a day-to-day -day level. People in Gaza harbor a lot of resentment towards it. Hamas as a political party, in the last attempt to hold Palestinian elections, they were, they were projected internally. Their own polls told them that they were projected to win about 24% of the vote. So they're not that significant politically as a party. But Hamas's, the existence of Hamas's armed wing, Al-Qassam Brigades, is significant to Palestinians not because of its actions, but because of its existence, because it's the only army that Palestinians have. You can criticize them in a lot of ways. I do in, in many ways. You can go and read all my articles. But for Palestinians in Gaza in particular, they see that their mere existence is the only thing that prevents Israeli soldiers and settlers from driving into Gaza and doing the same things they are doing in the West Bank, terrorizing people at, at 3, 4 in, in past midnight, getting them out of bed, detaining them, blindfolding them, tying them and kidnapping them, or killing people, burning homes, cutting trees, etc., with full impunity. So they see the existence of this military force, Hamas, as a deterrent to prevent Gaza from becoming a clone of the West Bank. And I, I think, so, can, I, can, but, I, can I come in there and just say, that's actually really important well, well. that people need to understand that that's not giving uh, your your um, approval to what happened on October 7th. That is simply the human condition 
to want to survive, to want to to want to have integrity, to want to actually, you know, be free in the world. Like I, I always think in just before I think it was three weeks before um October seventh, we were talking with Mahmoud, myself and Martin were chatting, and we were having a conversation about things that had, that had happened. You know, we, we would have always covered events in, in, in Gaza in, in the West Bank and Martin asked him how he was and he and he went very quiet and he said um he said that his friend had just been killed uh, when he was a farmer had been killed as you you know the usual nonsense where they said oh he was um, mm. they hit him with a rocket because he was a terrorist he wasn't a terrorist he was just a guy mm. working in the field but the, the the terrifying thing Mahmoud said was he said my name is Mahmoud and he spoke in the third person he said I'm 21 I live in one room with one door that's blocked mm. and one window where I can look out but I can't see the world from. And that is the perimeter of Gaza mm. that you've just referred to, Mohammed. So people need to understand that 17 years of the blockade, Israel giving a few hours of electricity, a little bit of water, a few, a few trucks of aid and a few work visas is not giving anybody dignity or, or, or there's no parity of esteem there. It is simply the oppressor saying... We're going to make your prison a little bit more comfortable. Yep, precisely. That's a very good way of putting it. But there's also another dimension to it that violence in Gaza is daily. So even if Israel is not attacking way before October 7th, every time I talk to a friend in Gaza, there is a buzzing noise in the background. Yes, yes. And it's nonstop, 24 7. That's an Israeli drone, a surveillance and predator drone that is equipped and, and capable of striking targets, killing people, bombing homes, and it's on top of their heads 24-7. It, it never stops, and it gets loudest at night. At the same time, if you go to try to take a walk at, at the eastern primero of Gaza, that's where it's closest to Israel, you can get shot at very easily just for walking or trying to access your farm, as you said. I was once sitting at the beach on Gaza, and then a bullet landed, literally, I was sitting with a friend, and a bullet landed a few meters in front of us from an Israeli gunpoint just as random as that, and we ran away immediately. So the violence is there daily. The trauma is, the unresolved trauma is there is daily because 91% of kids in Gaza display symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And about 71% of kids, again, kids, are having major symptoms of persistent and chronic depression. The idea of suicide has crossed the minds of almost everyone I know in Gaza, old, young, and even kids. Because it's a permanent state of non-life. That's what preceded October 7th. Now, after Hamas's attack, the way that people in Gaza saw it, it, it had two different dimensions to it. There's the momentary, immediate reaction of what unfolded. And some people celebrated it for three reasons. Celebrated the, what happened in the beginning. Not later on when Hamas went into towns and then took over kibbutzes and cities, but when the fence broke down, mm. there's a picture of a bulldozer knocking down the fence. And that was separate from Hamas's attack because that happened around 9.30. Hamas started the attack at 6.30. But the bulldozer rushed to the fence and knocked it down when the news came back to Gaza that Hamas captured military bases in Israel and, and the Israeli Southern Command collapsed. So basically, when that bulldozer went there and knocked the fence down, there were a lot of civilians around it that walked out for the first time ever stepping a foot outside. Some of them, it, it's all on video, some of them, like the journalist Mutan al-Najjar, were in tears, literally, because they never stepped a foot outside Gaza. 
So that was immediately sort of a sensationalist cause for celebration for some. As the other one of the images of burned tanks and, and um, defeated Israeli soldiers, and that to some extent in Gaza creates a sense of, of let's say, like conquering your enemy or your oppressor or whatever, mm. and it's celebrated by some people. Again, some, not all, because I, I immediately, as soon as this attack unfolded, I called some friends who were immediately worried sick about what would come out of it. But then the last dimension is once Hamas brought in uh, Israeli captives and hostages, there was this sort of desperate hope that this would lead to the release of Israeli or Palestinian political prisoners. Now, the other dimension to it is what happened once people processed these immediate feelings on October 7th. And there is a great deal of resentment towards how the events unfolded, the images that we saw, the videos that came back from there, and how everything went on October 7th. But at the same time, people in Gaza would, not just in Gaza, no Palestinian at all would criticize and condemn Hamas while Israel is bombing our own families in Gaza. Because the only way this plays out is if you condemn Hamas, Israel will use it as a justification to go and say, look, Palestinians agree with us, Hamas are the bad guys, we have the right to wipe them out which means wiping out Gaza. So we would end up having blood on our hands every time we go and say, yeah, Hamas is the bad guys here and they should be condemned. Yeah. But once, so the war creates this rallying around the flag effect, but once the war stops, you will hear plenty of criticism and grievances from Palestinians towards what Hamas did. But, but, but Mohammed, I want to I point out a really quick thing. We're talking for over 30 minutes now, and I didn't have to say to you, do you condemn Hamas? We both understand, you know what I mean? We didn't have to have that bullshit um, pantomime. We didn't have to have it. We both know that human life is sacred. We both accept that. Yeah, yeah, so this is so. I just find it kind of, you know, it is. It's. It is this false narrative that people want to put out. One. One quick thing. I. I would like to kind of um, get your get get your opinion on because you've been absolutely really generous with your time and you've honestly this is one of the best conversations I've had. I've done over two thousand podcasts and this is one of the most enlightening podcasts I've ever done. Um, but can I ask you the hypocrisy of the EU? Um, as you see it now playing out, you know, let we let's not let's not call for a ceasefire. Let's not um, let's not have these. Let's 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 not even let's not even countenance the idea of Palestinian um, refugees. When by you know we've we've war on another on another front with with Ukraine, and the Ukrainian people are are rightly supported, um, rightly given you know access to um the, all the supports that 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 the EU can provide, and yet we have this horrendous situation whereby you know Ursula von der Leyen went over and basically embraced them and, and gave the green light. Do does it send an a, a really terrible message to? the Palestinian people, where the EU stands, albeit I know it's going to sound as really cocky, Ireland has been a little bit of sticking out like a sore thumb by trying to be different on this. Yep, Ireland was one of the few EU member states that actually took a principled position both on Ukraine and Gaza. They've maintained consistency and I think they were some of the most decent positions coming out throughout this war or coming from Ireland. Um, with Ursula von der Leyen, when I talk to European diplomats or officials, they would always tell us that uh, Ukraine and Gaza are not comparable, Palestinians and Ukrainians, it's not the same. 
I give them that. Okay, Ukraine and Palestine, it's like comparing apples and oranges. I give you that. But international law is different. It's, it applies equally the same in any context at all. So, for instance, when Russia bombed a Ukrainian power plant, immediately Joseph, uh, Joseph Borrell, the chief of the EU foreign policy, he came out and said, this is, quote, a crime against humanity and a war crime. Ursula von der Leyen, she said, this is, quote, pure terrorism. Uh, Zelensky himself says this is barbaric and that makes you an enemy of humanity. Then Israel does literally the same thing, word for word, cutting water, electricity, heating, medicine, and food. And the most you get from them is that ah, that was only Joseph Borrell saying that it's uh, it's going to uh, unleash a humanitarian crisis that's terrible. We need to try. I studied risk management. I know bullshit when I see it. <laughs> I, one of my first one of my first cases was actually about a cruise ship that went to Haiti right when the earthquake happened and killed about 200,000 people. And that company realized that they messed up big time to bring tourists to a private beach literally while people are still being picked up from under the rubble. So the only way they managed to try to um, do this what is called reputational risk management is next time they came in with the next cruise ship they brought with it medicine and food, but still vacated at that private beach resort. And that's literally what the EU is doing here, is basically giving Israel a carte blanche to do whatever they want, unleash hell on Palestinians, and then send us a few bags of flour, wheat flour and rice and, and kidney beans and say, okay, now we're even, aren't we? So that's one level of it. But the other level is that it's extremely, not just hypocritical, it's ex extremely reckless and dangerous. So now Putin is taking advantage of the EU glaring hypocrisy and double standards. And he is now launching a charm offensive in the Middle East yeah. of actually being the only voice in all of Europe that's coming out to condemn the killing of Palestinian kids in Gaza and saying this should make you clench your fists and it should make you cry. He's using it to whitewash what he's doing in Ukraine. And he will win a lot of hearts and minds because he's the only one that's speaking clearly and unequivocally against the killing of children. Like, how absurd is it? And how difficult could it be that you should come out and say killing children is bad? It's insane. Oh, it, but it's, basically... I, well, we sit here now and we watch the UK um, mm. Prime Minister in waiting and Keir Starmer uh, have to correct himself every two days because he says one thing, finds out people don't like it, and then he changes what he was saying. But I, I, I agree with you. I, I, like I'm, I'm nodding my head here listening to you. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, but I have a lot of sympathy to European officials and diplomats. They are in a very tough position. So I talked to some European diplomats in, in Ramallah and in Jerusalem. People are underground and they tend to be the most knowledgeable and sympathetic. And they say they tell me basically they realize that this is messed up and this is extremely dangerous because what it does, as I said, Putin whitewashes himself and launches a charm offensive. It also risks radicalizing and increasing dangers and risks of homegrown terror attacks. That's I, that's um, where I was going to go yeah, to with this. I'm, that's where the question I want to ask you, because that is the, like, I, the amount of American analysts who are now talking about Gaza as if it's Fallujah. They're talking about Gaza mm. in terms of Mosul. And I'm thinking to myself, every time you did that, you actually, you know, when you, when you went into Fallujah, you said there was, you know, 10,000 um, insurgents there. But every time you killed one, you spawned three more. Um, yep, 
and and that is the terrifying prospect that the West is literally making things worse for everybody. Uh, and I mean that for like for me, for you, for for people anywhere. We are now putting a situation whereby we're making it worse for everybody. And can I get your considered and educated opinion on this? Is are we like this? You cannot stamp out a people. You cannot do this. And we, you know, what's the line? Um, if we fail to lo- learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. And yet here we are. They're actually referencing Fallujah as some sort of blueprint for this. It's it's just going to cause so much carnage. Yeah, I've been very worried about our Jewish brothers and sisters in Europe and in the US and uh, my Muslim brothers and sisters as a. Palestinian Arab myself, I rarely leave home since October 7th. I'm afraid for my own safety. Of course, I receive a lot of of death threats on Twitter. That's a daily routine. But I've been physically reluctant to go outside out of fear of of this sort of hostile atmosphere, dehumanizing Palestinians and presenting them as enemies or enemies of humanity. But also I've been worried about what this would unleash because every time there is a war in Gaza, Two things go up, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism immediately. Mm. And now this war is like nothing we've ever seen before. But something that this European diplomat was telling me, one of them who was the most honest, is basically, he said it very well. He said, we cannot not say Israel has a right to defend itself and go after Hamas. We cannot not say that. Because if we try to change that, Israel will immediately say beheaded babies. Yeah, that's the first thing they respond with. Yep. So we cannot not say it. And he said, I know that what we say after that, because they say Israel has the right to defend itself, but in accordance with international law. He said, I know that part is bullshit. Sorry. You're okay. And he said, but we, yeah, he said, we are struggling to come up with what should come after this, but Israel has the right to defend itself, but, and he asked me to help brainstorm with him. What should they say after that? But as a, justification for their own hypocrisy because they are in a situation where they cannot actually speak truth to power or be honest with their Israeli counterparts and say that your war in Gaza is not going to work. It's going to wipe out Gaza, radicalize Palestinians even more and strengthen Hamas in Lebanon, Syria, the West Bank, Iran, Qatar, etc. all over the world and will create worse versions of Hamas and worse groups than Hamas. They know that this is what's happening if Israel continues with this campaign, but none of them is able to convey it to their Israeli counterparts. Mohammed, um, I'm conscious of time. I've kept you so long. I This has been an absolute eye-opener for many of our listeners, I'm sure. Um, if you haven't been aware of the context of this, this is one of the best breakdowns I've, I've, I've heard. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate the writing you've done, the advocacy you've done. I don't know how you maintain your, your uh, sanity with, with the, your social media posts, and I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. <laughs> no, no, n- <laughs> neither of us do, do we? We're, 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 the, the, secret is, the secret is we're all a bit mad anyway, you know? Hi, I'm, I'm in a state of a free fall, just not sure when I will hit ground rock bottom and burn out completely. Yeah, well, but I can't stop. No, and 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 I, I owe it to my 
Mm. You know, we and someone said that to me the, yesterday. They said, "Would you take twenty four hours off?" And I said, "Why? My my friends don't get to take twenty four hours off. I have to. We have to start." And these are your family and friends we're talking about. So, so it's it's the it's it's been a great pleasure, and I'm sure listeners will get the the the, 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 the most benefit out of it. Um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. And I hope to talk. But yep, but if I can conclude with one thing do, very quickly, please do. That's the thing you mentioned about the ceasefire that it would only strengthen Hamas. Okay, so basically, if I was an Israeli, I get that question a lot of, okay, so imagine yourself an Israeli leader, what would you do if your people were attacked? And I would do exactly thus. Now you have Israeli ground troops on Gaza, you have Israeli blockade on Gaza, you have Israeli airstrikes that wiped out most of Gaza City and most of Gaza, the Gaza Strip in its entirety and killed close to 10,000 people, if not more. You've done the devastation already that would leave Gazans marked for years to come, and it would create this sort of deterrence to try to do on October 7th again. But if I was an Israeli leader, I would say, okay, I wouldn't lie to my people, and I would tell them a very honest conclusion. Hamas cannot be defeated militarily. And destroying it in Gaza means destroying Gaza itself. And the only thing that this would produce is making a worse version of Hamas in Gaza for the people that would lose their homes and live in tents. My grandmother's home was bombed a couple of days ago. Yeah. Now she's, she's literally sleeping on the street. 75-year-old woman, it took her, her entire life with, with my granddad to afford this home, and then she lost it in a blink of an eye. The pain that this leaves you with, the burning hatred, the rage, it leaves you with nothing to lose, nothing to hope for, and an immense rage to go and do something about it, to kick and scream. And now Israel has destroyed in Gaza over 150,000 homes, partially and completely. So it's basically a recruitment post for, for people to come and attack Israel, to people to bear arms and attack Israel. So even if you, if you defeat Hamas in Gaza, Gaza will become very hostile in nature. It would become a very fertile ground for way worse alternatives to Hamas. The West Bank would witness a strengthening and emergence of Hamas. And in Lebanon, where most Palestinians live in equally terrible and unlivable conditions. And in Syria as well, and in Iran and others. So Hamas will not be defeated militarily. There's a study by the Rand Corporation in 2008 called How Terrorist Groups End. Rand Corporation is, is one of the world's biggest think tanks. It's, they looked at it, 200. It's, it's pretty right wing as well. Yep, exactly. They looked at 268 terrorist organizations and art groups. They found that only 7% of them were defeated militarily. The majority of the sophisticated um, large complex groups in, in these kind of, of uh, very complex urban spaces, the only way to defeat them is through a political process. And Hamas, the only way to defeat it as an ideology is to make it redundant, to make it to make its platform irrelevant for Palestinians. And at the heart of the problem, what made Hamas possible in the first place is the occupation and the unresolved grievances of continued disposition, um, humiliation and oppression of Palestinians. So if I was an Israeli leader, I would tell my people the only way we can kill Hamas is to offer this proposal dismantling all Palestinian militant groups in return for Palestinian statehood, neither as a prerequisite. So we wouldn't say, ah, oh, dismantle first and become Canadian, and then there's yeah. a pie in the sky yeah, of Palestinian yeah, yeah. state. But 
both as a simultaneous process. It's the same as, as you found with RA and the Shen Fen. Shen Fen negotiating, RA maintaining their weapons, and then the outcome of the agreement is IRA laying the, their weapons down. So it's something similar, gradual, simultaneous dismantling of all militant groups. You would have a majority backing of this on the Palestinian side, as long as it leads to a Palestinian state or alternatively a confederate model between Israel or Palestine or alternatively just equality for Palestinians with Israelis. Anything that would give Palestinians a decent life, they would immediately abandon Hamas and the popular backing of Hamas would disappear if it's a genuine process. So if if I'm an Israeli leader trying to trying to create safety for my own people, it wouldn't be by living by the sword, because there would be always enemies for that. There would always be people impacted by that sword who will try to exact revenge or try to just attack to shake the status quo. The only way you would do it is basically to address the underlying root causes of the Palestinian grievances and current state of being. Mohammed, that was, uh, as I said, a powerhouse of a, a podcast with you, and I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners are going to absolutely love the stuff that how you've broken it down, and how I want to just one little thing on that. It's and it's very clear what you've just said, but we want to put it in an Irish context for an Irish audience. The morning after Bloody Sunday, which was a civil rights march, looking for equality, looking for you know people in in the nationalist community get jobs and have access to different to decent housing, there was a queue around the corner to join the IRA because of what happened. So you know the, by stamping on Hamas, you are creating a, a worse aspect. So so you are I, I fully agree with you. I'm nodding my head here. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. And and um, thank you again, as I said, for for the all the advocacy. I I'm so glad we got to talk. I've been reading your stuff and watching you for for a number of years now, uh, and it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and and do keep up the good work, and we'll maybe we'll both go crazy together one day over a cup of coffee or something. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, I would love to. It's it's one of my top wishes to visit Ireland one day. We'll, 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 Palestinians have a lot of affinity to Irish people. The love is mutual. Absolutely. I, 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 the day the day you land, I'll be at the airport to pick you up. Thank Listen, folks, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.